I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, a tale of betrayal, jealousy, and murder. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international for teens, and crossed the Atlantic countless times, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Scott. I understand you have a special treat in store for us because it is the spooky season. So what do you have in store for today's episode? Well, I wrote a piece for Halloween. Now, we have all seen our share of boat movies. And there are some boat movies that we like and some boat movies that we don't like. But one thing is for sure with all boat movies is there's some flaws. And as a sailor, you almost always see those flaws and you go, "Uh, okay, you know, I'll let him pass this time or whatever the case may be. I mean, Master and Commander, first of all, is the best boat movie, period. That's a great, great boat movie in terms of drama and theme, characters, the whole shoot and match. It's just beautifully filmed. And um, so that's my top. There's a couple of others. I mean, Dead Calm comes to mind. Um, but there's some real stretches of imagination to work there. But I decided to write a story that was a little Halloween um, about a series of murders. And they took place on a boat. Um, I am telling the story as a character, not as myself. Um, I've never murdered anybody on the boat not discounting land. <laughs> anyway, um, I just I just wanted to sort of uh, pay tribute to something spooky, and I did so with uh, Murder on the High Seas. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. watched my boat slowly descend into the murky water, cradled in the sturdy straps of the travel lift. I'd been one month on the hard in Chikorama's shipyard, Trinidad. The plan was to be in and out in three weeks, plenty of time to accomplish two big jobs, replace the teak and replace the bowsprit. We all know how plans in boat yards go. They're meant to be spoiled. I was trying to be philosophical about it but I was becoming unhinged. Easter week had caused a number of craftsmen to disappear, leaving my jobs unfinished. My complaints to management met with an island shrug of the shoulders. I was now on a tighter schedule. I was feeling the pressure. A schedule at the start was deemed luxurious and vacation-like. I'd even wondered what I was going to do with my extra time. I sailed with Laura, my girlfriend and mate, from St. Thomas to Trinidad. 
We didn't stop on the way down. We ticked off islands as, as they went by, using the flat seas and steady mountain breeze on the leeward side of St. Kitts, of Nevis, of Montserrat, of Guadeloupe, of Dominica, of Martinique, of St. Lucia, and the Grenadines in Grenada, and finally into Trinidad. Laura was content and happy. I was feeling confident. We moved at a steady eight knots behind the islands using my 150 Genoa. Like clockwork, when I approached the southern edge of the island, I would douse the Genoa and hoist my jib. Let me go over that again. We moved a steady eight knots behind the islands using my 150 Genoa. Like clockwork, when I approached the southern edge of the island, I would douse the Genoa and hoist my jib. The wind would heal the boat and we would race off at a blistering 12 knots. After about 10 miles, we would settle into a nice steady eight knots. You just repeat this island after island. It was blissful sailing with a lovely partner. And although, to be honest, I was worried about the bowsprit and whether or not it was going to hold up to the stress of the trip. We made it to Trinidad with a couple of days to spare. I anchored off the boatyard, splashed the dinghy, and eagerly looked forward to an adventure. Up to this point, I had had few relationships. I had had relationships on land. I mean, a normal go-to-work life type of relationship. I had had boat relationships, but there's still a lot of learning to do. Loyalty was a prime ingredient for me in a relationship. Land relationships seem to have been more transactional. In a land relationship, you're building a life. There are finances, family, friends, all working. It can be suffocating. Loyalty keeps the trust up while hard work and sacrifice builds a life. Boat relationships can be transient. They are understood to be transient. When you impose the aspects of land relationships onto a boat relationship, there's a serious problem. I wanted a land relationship and Laura wanted a boat relationship. I wanted love. She wanted to live life to the fullest. I wanted to trust her. She wanted to party. I was the vehicle for the robust experience she sought. A yacht, a business, freedom to roam around the world. I let her in and offered all I had. Our first night in Trinidad, we went to a club. We drank and danced. I am not a great dancer. She was a great dancer. She danced with a handsome local guy. They danced close. Their hips were moving in perfect unison on the beat. I was really jealous. I shouldn't have been. I was worldly enough to know it was just a dance, but the look in her face. I tried to be cool, but I wasn't. Something inside me saw the whole relationship, my dreams of a relationship, shattered like a broken glass. I wasn't cognizant of anything other than my anger. When we got back to the boat, I blew up. I yelled. I terrified her. I experienced uncontrollable emotions. I have never felt so outraged 
I mean, I was livid and blind with anger. My inner self begged for control. I was possessed by something I couldn't control. Something or someone else was in control. I picked up my evil eye and threw it against the bulkhead and shattered it into a hundred pieces. And from that point on, my anger was in control, but not gone, and my insides burned. The handsome local boy who danced provocatively with Laura had an extremely jealous girlfriend who was also a powerful sorceress. She cursed me for bringing Laura to the dance. She grabbed my arm as we walked out of the club and marked my hand with a charcoal cross. She tried to reach Laura, but she had rushed out of the club because I was such an asshole. I was the only one marked by the curse. The handsome young man got in my face, and we fought. A Greek friend had given me the trinket a long time ago to ward off evil spirits, and he half-jokingly said, I know you're not suspicious, being a modern man, but that doesn't mean superstitions don't have a purpose. Evil exists whether you believe it or not. These words haunted me like a cautionary tale, but I didn't exercise any prudency with regard to superstitions. I left port on Friday. My girlfriend was a redhead. I didn't have a ship's cat, but I did shoo one away. I don't have tattoos. I practice hygiene on my boat. I don't whistle as a practice because I rarely hit the right note. I did, however, practice a French superstition about never saying lapin or rabbit on a boat. If you're ever in a situation where you need to get a bunch of French sailors off your boat, start saying rabbit or lapin and the exodus will follow. A joke, of course, or not. After the dancing incident, I threw myself into the work. Laura did the same. She took care of the cleaning and finding little repairs. I could do inside the boat that were necessary. I repaired the corner of a floor, for example, in the head where the shower water had seeped down and softened to wood. It ended up being a bigger job than I thought. My anger grew. I was impatient. I, I couldn't concentrate. I resented her pointing out the flaws in my boat. My boat was an extension of me. You criticize my boat, it's daggers to my heart. As the days rolled on, I became even snappier. I barked at the sun rising and setting, trying to squeeze everything in and all the projects within a three-week period is exhausting and it's dirty and it's just fatigue wasn't helping my attitude. Drinking wasn't helping my attitude. I was a very, very unpleasant man. I was filled with unaccountable rage. Sunny, vibrant green Trinidad had become one of my darkest nightmares. The charcoal smudge on my hand seemed to be permanent. I tried to wash it off and couldn't. I apologized to Laura for my behavior. She informed me that when we returned to St. Thomas, she was going to fly home and reevaluate our relationship. I joked, maybe I should take dance lessons. 
She shook her head. Bad, bad answer on my part. I felt vindictive. I felt aggrieved. She didn't care. She was tired of me being an angry asshole, which I don't blame her. I tried to explain my behavior out as, I, as it was out of my character. She reminded me that it wasn't, and she remained suspicious. The sail back to St. Thomas was uneventful. Laura and I kept our distance. I brooded like a volcano preparing to explode. My thoughts turned darker and malevolent. I spent hours spinning a long knife between my fingers, like a gunslinger itching for a deadly fight. My rage was barely containable. I obsessed on the water depth and currents. What if I thought? I wanted to cry as I watched Laura disappear from my life. My inner space, in my inner space, I knew that she felt that she was escaping. Clarity and self-awareness lasted a precious few minutes. The reset was enough for me to get my boat underway and to cross the Atlantic, and then to cross the length of the Med and arrive in time to pick up a very, very lucrative charter. I needed a release from this anger. A relationship that lasted two years was over because of me. I took a moment to consolidate my feelings. I don't know how I did it, because the rage in me was growing. I was behind schedule, not a moment to lose. I had to go, became my inner mantra. I took on three crew members. Ben, a 20-something wanderer. If there was a type, backpacker, day worker, party animal, just moving with the currents of the wind and water, kind of guy, uncommitted, and not particularly bright, Ben would be the poster child. He had some boat experience, and I quickly counted on him to watch my back. That was a mistake. Jim was my charter guest. I took charter guests every time I crossed the Atlantic. The money paid for the expenses for the trip, making a crossing is a favorite bucket list for club sailors. Early retirement from Monsanto gave him the time and the money. He would not be my first choice to spend 14, 15 days in an open ocean with, but I had no choice. He was confident, entitled, authoritative, without basis. Jim's salesman-like smile left me feeling uncomfortable. He reminded me of a commercial musical jingle, catchy and short of substance. But he should be able to stand to watch. The third member of the crew was a 50-something-year-old British woman named Jane. Jane, a widow, was looking for a ride back to Europe. She had spent the better part of her life cruising with her ex-husband. He had passed away at sea. She was experienced. She would cook and stand watch. Jane helped me stock the galley. Ben followed me around by being somewhat helpful. He was careful not to tip his hand about the breadth of his sailing knowledge, which was honestly quite small. 
He was anxious and a little afraid about leaving. Jim sat in the cockpit and drank beer. Whenever we would stop in our frantic pace, he would tell us about a club sailing story or something about his girlfriend. I don't know. Long distance sailing is as much about personality as it is about skill. My anger, disappointment, urgency was now rolled up inside a curse. I was reminded of the curse every moment of the day by the stain on the back of my hand. We set sail late in the afternoon, topped off with water and fuel, loaded with groceries. She felt heavy and lethargic. We motored out of Charlotte Amale and headed east. I sailed through the British Virgin Islands towards Virgin Gorda, where I turned to port and set my sails. North, northeast was the heading. As we passed Dog Island, I noticed the crew was a bit apprehensive. I pointed out that this was the last bit of land we would see until the Azores. They all nodded with approval. I could feel their trepidation. I took it as an insult. My boat, my skill, my experience would carry them over the ocean safely. How could they even remotely doubt my boat, my skill? I was against them from the start. I fought my negative and my damaging thoughts, but no. The wind settled down to a steady ten knots coming abaft of the beam. We repeated a gentle corkscrew motion. Ben got sick. Jim was excited and talked. Jane made a nice roasted chicken with potatoes and green beans. I cracked a bottle of wine. I set the watches over dinner. I gave Ben time so he could recover. Time helps with seasickness. Jim volunteered for the first watch. Jane took the second. I took the third watch. But I would be up and down through the night. I do a four-hour watch system. The first and last hour overlaps the previous and next watch. That way you're only alone on deck by yourself for two hours. I made it a point to get up and check in the middle of somewhere in the two hours. James seemed puzzled by this process. Jim gave me his approval, which I did need. Ben went to his bunk. The routine was set. We made 185 to 205 nautical miles in a 24-hour period, and the Azores were roughly 14 or 15 days away. The weather picture was favorable. We would sail along a ridge of high pressure until we reached the horse latitudes and then run east for the Azores and Gibraltar and the entrance to the Med. This was a traditional course. On the third night, I laid in my bunk and I heard a murmuring coming down through the deck hatch. I checked my watch. Jim was in the middle hours of his watch. I got up. Ben was in the galley making a cup of tea. He looked guilty over something. He sheepishly looked away to watch the kettle boil. I went on deck and Jim greeted me with a friendly smile. A jingle for Bud Light ran through my head. I checked the course, I checked the chart plotter, 
Jim had been scrolling through the chart plotter and changed a bunch of settings. I was perturbed. I went out to the bow. The topping lift on the jib looked good. I checked the 150 Genoa flaked along the safety lines. I came back to the cockpit, checking the tension on the standing rigging as I went. I stopped and leaned against the main mast. It was a beautiful night. The moon was descending in the east. It was full and blood red. This foretold of a front moving through. Earlier I had checked in on the single sideband net and reported my position. I listened to the latest weather advice from the operator, a hobbyist from Maine that covered the North Atlantic. A spring snowstorm was rushing across the east coast of the United States. We would have a 30-knot wind coming from the north lasting for about six hours. Rainfall was expected to be heavy. The seas would be six to eight feet with another 10 to 12 foot swells every 20 seconds. I was looking forward to the wind and the rain. Ocean sailors love low fronts because they pack stronger winds. Stronger winds means faster sailing. I returned to the cockpit. Jim was watching my every step. I sat down next to him. He was drinking a hot tea. Ben had gone to his bunk. We have some wind and rain coming, I said. Will it be rough, Jim? Sipped his tea. He didn't like the sound of the weather report. What will we do? Oh, this is great news. A solid 30-knot wind speed, speeding us along? I, I, don't like, I don't like it. It'll be fun, Jim. You have rain gear. I have all the safety harnesses possible. And she will do well referring to the boat a big heavy girl like this is mother's this is mother's milk in this kind of weather just beautiful have you ever been in storms before i looked at him yes five hurricanes on this boat made she made it through easily don't worry weather especially a small storm like this one is a good thing with any luck we'll add a extra 50 miles a day i laughed I like terrifying Jim for some reason. My malicious advice satisfied my boiling anger underneath my captain facade. Call me if the wind picks up or if you see any lights out there. I needed to nip Ben's deviousness in the bud. He showed he didn't have my back. I had to deal with him. I returned to my bunk. I felt the shift of the wind in the waves. And then I can jumped up to the cockpit. By this time, the weather was just starting to get dirty. Jane was sitting at the helm, watching the autohome correct itself with every lift and rise of the boat. I debated with myself whether to reef the main. I could drop the jib quickly enough and just run on the staysail, mainsail, and the full mizzen. under a 30-knot wind. My sail plan would be fine, that I was actually running with the wind abaft of the beam. I could spill any over-eager gusts, and what I wanted was speed. I explained myself to Jane, who had experience. She deferred to my plan. I noticed her eyes glow red. I attributed the glow to the binnacle light. It was a red light.
we sat together on the wind on the windward side of the cockpit. She started to tell me about the death of her husband. She seemed eager. It appears it was a night like this, when he was just finishing reefing the main, when he stepped back into the cockpit, and with her at the helm, a rogue wave caused the boom to swing. She paused. Clearly the memory was still fresh in her mind. She looked up, her eyes glowed red. The boom crushed the side of his head and broke his neck in an instant, she said. I thought I heard a hint of satisfaction layered underneath her somber tone. Ben joined us on deck. He was sleepy. The boat was beginning to pitch with some power, making it impossible to sleep without being lodged between something like the bulkhead and the hull. The wind was picking up. Gusts hit us at 25 knots. Since we were sailing at a steady 11 knots, apparent wind felt less than 14 or 15. The rollers started to come faster and bigger. Look back and you could see the waves rush headlong towards the stern and then slide underneath the stern with a deep rumble, wave after wave. The auto helm in these seas was working very hard. I elected to steer. When I steer a boat, I feel the whole boat in my hands and my feet. I can anticipate the roll of the waves. I can feel the wind and almost predict its force. I become instinctual and zen-like. I wanted to talk to Ben about undermining my authority, but Jane was sitting next to him, and I wanted to speak with him privately. The wind whistled through the rigging. The sails hardly wavered, even in the smallish ten-foot troughs. We were set. We were steady now, at thirteen knots. The movement of the vessel was smoother and weightier. I live for this kind of sailing. At night, this is an amazing experience. As the night wore on, the storm intensified. The momentum would carry us crashing into the back shoulder of a wave in front of us. The ocean and the spray rushed over the deck, causing the scuppers to fill ankle deep and then gush overboard like a fire hose. The rain added to the mix of flying ocean water. I yelled to Ben, where's Jim? He shrugged his shoulders as if he didn't know. Ben appeared not to want to go downstairs. Naturally, if you have a problem with seasickness, going below will only make it worse. Jane volunteered to check on him, and she offered to make some coffee. It was going to be a long night, and I wasn't going to let anyone steer. One wrong turn and the whole rig could collapse. I talked to Ben while Jane was gone. I asked him what he and Jim were talking about when I was asleep. He denied talking to Jim. I informed him. I heard them through the aft deck hatch. After a long pause and being tossed around by a couple of waves, they were uncomfortable with Jane. Uncomfortable in what way? At that moment, Jane emerged from downstairs with a coffee mug and a glass of pastis for Ben. She told him to drink it. It would settle his stomach. 
Ben seemed unsure. He looked at me. I nodded for him to drink it down. I took a sip of my coffee and set it in the cup holder. Jane couldn't make a decent cup of coffee. I went back to concentrating on my steering. Jane said Jim was sleeping. She rejoined us. I stayed at the helm until the storm passed. The sky lightened. The sea laid down. We were scudding along at about ten knots. and Ben had fallen asleep in the corner of the cockpit. I caught Jane studying me. She offered to take over. She asked if I wanted something else to drink. I told her I would make it myself. I needed a break from the helm. I re-engaged the auto helm now that the sea was laying down. I made a couple adjustments to the main, to the jib, and the mizzen. We were back to smooth sailing. I was exhausted. I left everything set, and Jane took over the watch. Jim would replace her in an hour. Ben laid curled up in the corner of the cockpit. I fell fast asleep for the first time since Trinidad and the curse. All the emotions, jealousy, anger, disgust, and sadness had been washed away with the storm, and it's the deepest sleep I have ever experienced. I woke with the sun washing over my face, and the smell of bacon cooking. Wait, something is not right. The sudden shouldn't be in my face. We changed course. I shook the cobwebs out of my head. I shouldn't have felt this thick-headed. Jane was cooking bacon and eggs in the galley. She cheerfully called out, Good morning. I mumbled something to her as I climbed the stairs into the cockpit. The cockpit was empty. I got behind the helm and I looked at the course. We were heading south. I grumbled in anger. I changed the course back to west. I reset the sheets of the jib for a westerly course. I pulled the main in. I set the preventer. What the hell happened? I bellowed. Jane came upstairs with a paper plate of bacon, eggs, and toast. Here you go, Captain. Breakfast. Jane, who changed course? How long have I been sleeping? What's going on? I changed course, darling. Where's Ben and Jim? She slid the paper plate onto the cockpit seat. She had a bottle of vodka in her hand. In her belt was a large kitchen knife. Oh, darling, don't be upset. Those two were only getting in the way. She pulled the knife from her belt. She took a swig from the vodka bottle. Getting in the way? In what? In way? In what? Of what? In way of what? Where are they? Jean smiled and looked over the ocean. They went out there. We have to turn back and go look for them. You're fucking crazy. Please don't say that word. Jane, tell me, where are Ben and Jim? I was protecting you. I was protecting us. It's going to be great. We could go anywhere in the world. You and me making love. Don't you appreciate what I did? Please tell me what happened. Here, she handed me the plate. Your eggs are getting cold. I threw the plate overboard. That wasn't nice. I could have gotten rid of you too, but I changed my mind. You didn't drink my coffee. Shame. I slipped that nice boy Ben over the side before your head even hit the pillow. She 
cackle like a machine gun. She took another big swig of vodka. Jim, or whatever his name. She stumbled a little from the boat pitching on the last scruffy storm wave. Jim wanted to take over the boat. He was plotting with Ben to kill you. I couldn't let that happen, my love. I had to protect you. You see, I I have protected myself before. You understand, my husband was so cruel. And after I crushed his fat, ugly head, everything was so much better and right away. What did you do to Jim? He was a mess. I stabbed him in the neck. Thank goodness. He jumped up and tried to get away because he was easy to push over the side. You were so tired, I was afraid you might have heard the splash. Then, as fortune would have it, the rain came and washed the deck clean. Quite good luck when you think about it. Except for you, you didn't like my coffee. You're right, you make a terrible cup of coffee. I pushed the auto helm to tack. The boom swung across the deck. It hit Jane in the side of the head. She staggered. Blood gushed from her head. She stood there, looking surprised, and in a slow mo- and in slow motion, she fell overboard. I watched the vodka bottle in the wake until it disappeared. I skipped the Azores and sailed directly to Gibraltar. Nine days later, I was standing in the Customs and Immigration Office. The British Customs Office looked over my paperwork. You have a message here. It seems the young lady was very concerned. I was baffled. Congratulations on making your solo crossing. I stammered, and only noise came out of my mouth. I wanted to recount the story about the murders. Then Laura burst into the office, and she hugged and kissed me. What are you doing here? I said. You told me to meet you here so that we can cruise the med together. I'm sorry if I was a jerk. You were nervous about the trip. The customs official banged stamps onto my passport. He handed them back to me. Welcome to Gibraltar. Thank you. Laura and I walked out into the bright sunshine. I have to say I'm, I'm relieved it isn't true. What, darling? What isn't true? Oh, crazy thoughts. It's just good to see people and land. I checked the back of my hand and the smudge was gone. I found an evil eye in a gift shop and bought it. Laura and I laughed together. Superstitions, evil eyes, curses, bad spirits, all nonsense. Two weeks later, I was washing the boat when I noticed something strange. Wedged in the block at the end of the boom was a dried piece of skin and gray hair. I gasped. story scott uh thanks for sharing with us had some interesting twists and turns in there what do we have planned for next week's episode 
Um, next week, we're going to talk about food. I'm going to talk about boat cuisine. I have literally eaten myself around the world in a variety of different countries, different restaurants. I've had lots of different kinds of food. Um, I love eating. I love eating with people. Um, I love the communion that takes place. And uh, I'm going to sort of start from the beginning, um, talk a little bit about how to stock your boat, what things to stock and not to stock. And I'll, I've got a few stories about that. And um, we'll go from, you know, catching fish, how we caught them, whatever. And, and eventually, you know, certain restaurants, um, certain way foods are prepared in different countries, what to expect when you go shopping in different countries. Um, because it's not all U.S. kind of stuff, even though it may the store may look like a U.S.-type grocery store. The behaviors are very different. But anyway, take it from me. I have uh, bought enough food in enough, enough different countries to, uh, to pay for the GDP of some of them. And um, so we're, we're going to start on a little food exploration. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.